So George, you and I have been talking throughout this year about business, about strategy, about strategic thinking, about critical thinking, about all these really important topics. And yeah. you've just come back from overseas. I thought it would be good today to talk about uh, international business. And I think it's natural for a lot of entrepreneurs when they're building a business to get caught up in the, or romanticise about expanding into other markets, particularly Australia being so secluded from the rest of the world we have yeah, this temptation maybe as aussie entrepreneurs to want to be part of you know a bigger yeah. village let's start with that and and what's your experience been um in the international business realm because you've worked in some pretty cool places yeah yeah so um just as a bit of background um you know i've worked in brazil i've worked in indonesia i've worked in china um and malaysia and now I've just come back from a three-week scouting tour in Chile. So, um, so you're right. I mean, it's very much romanticised, especially about um, going overseas. Much of what we teach at university as well also is very one-dimensional. We say you follow step one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and you kind of, and this is how you can kind of succeed in international business however the reality of it is a little bit more different i mean because you know we you know you and i have been talking about strategy and strategy formulation you know and but we've been talking about it in a domestic setting and you can see how complicated it is so when we talk about international expansion we have to add another layer of complexity over that and that is time culture institutions right? you know business practices so on and so forth right so the reality of it is 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 that it is um marred with complexity you know when we go overseas um especially around the cultural aspects mm. some things don't kind you know our our way of doing things in australia might be a little bit different to overseas and when you don't have that cultural understanding or that or or, or when this or or there's a term called psychic distance that is our that is the distance between what happens our interpretation of what happens over there right uh is 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 long um then we we get confused things don't make sense to us you know why is it that they do these business practices like this where we do it like that you know so um it is it is complex it, you know it's marred with uncertainty but however you know I'm not only about opportunity seeking, but I'm also about risk management as well. So, I mean, from my experience, it's always good to approach these things optimistically, but also from a realistic perspective. And the one thing that I can, that I'd like to tell your audience is, is that don't expect any kind of quick wins, right? You know, you go, you go for the long term, right? I remember um, 2019, February 2019, Dom and I land in London, uh, yeah. two Aussie entrepreneurs, uh, you know, we're, we're used to getting stuff done. We go and register a company, really easy, right? Yeah. Much easier than registering an Australian company. Like, how good is this? Then we go to open up a bank account and it turns into one of the hardest things we've ever done in business, trying yeah. to open up a bank account in the UK as uh, non-resident directors. Yep. Nobody would open up a bank account 
for us. Yeah. And that that leads um, into many other things. And we start to go on a, on a journey of realizing how different even the yeah. smallest things are yeah. in a market that's very similar to Australia, yet alone a completely different, um, you know, uh, culture, for example. Yeah. And, um, you know, that, 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 that's, that goes to what you're saying, that it's the little things uh, yeah. can compound and make a big difference. It's, you know, these, these small things are very, very frustrating. I mean, so you know, London, as you said, you know, is from, a, from an academic perspective, should be a very easy market to go into. However, you can see these small bits and pieces, and it is a disabler. Not having a bank account basically just kind of says, okay, we need to stop whatever we're trying to do until we have some this bank account, which is really a mechanism for us to capture our revenue, right? Well, and we had a VC fund that wanted to give up, pay us, and we didn't have a bank account to be yeah. paid, right? The simplest thing, you, you, yeah. you've got people that want to pay you. Um, and it, it opens up your eyes as to why crypto yeah. appeals to so many parts of the world i mean we're very well serviced in australia from a banking yeah. perspective and we maybe don't what's why would i need to have crypto yeah, yeah. excellent banking choices but it's not like that around the rest of the world right i mean even you know and this is london the first you know this is london which is the uk which is a first world country where and so forth but when you even go into the development Developing world, any parts of the developed world, a lot of things can be done online. You know, we can set up a company here in Australia or in Singapore or in, in the US or in the UK really online. But then when you in, enter into, you know, countries such as Indonesia, which was my experience, um, you know, it took months to set up a company because it had to be done through a notary. You know, they had to be proper, you know, you had to write the constitution. Um, you need to open up a a foreign bank account with fifty thousand dollars us in it 50 grand to open up a company and you need to deposit that 50 in a bank you, need account. To, you needed to deposit no actually it was i think uh, it was either fifty thousand us or five hundred thousand us i'm not really sure it was one of those but either way Yes, you needed to deposit a significant amount of money into a bank account just to open up a, a foreign owned entity I mean, and and these sorts of things are, you know, can you know really, you know, can really stump you, right? And especially the 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 latency of opening that company. It took us months and months and months, right? I'm not sure what it is now, but I'm I'm, I'm talking, you know, 2000 and 2008, 2009, 2010, right? So, um, and just understanding the 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 differences in legal codes. You know, we're a common law jurisdiction here in Australia. You know, you go to many parts of the world, it's civil law. I mean, what are the ramifications of that? Well, I mean, from an, from an intellectual property uh, perspective, it's, it's, it's significant, right? So, yeah. so you're right in that sense. But even, but, you know, this is where it's important to do some research and planning as well. You know, much of this stuff you can do on a, des a desktop analysis here in Australia. And, and and you can do inquiries over the phone and so forth but uh, but you know you need to still have you need to still do your research with regards to that and not go over there starry-eyed but you know but be realistic and what to expect you know as we say 
you know, we hope for the best, but we plan for the worst, right? Yeah, for sure. So that's, you know, there's some of the little trivial things that you run into when you're setting up and just yeah. from a corporate structure perspective. The way I think about um, international or expanding beyond your borders, I think about it in two tranches. So either on the supply side, you're providing yeah. a good or a service and you either want to go and hire people overseas or you want to source goods from overseas yeah. or it is to fulfill your demand. Yeah. Um, or you can go and try to expand your demand from yeah. your current country to other countries. I think the demand side is much harder. I think it's much easier to go and source, um, you know, supply from overseas. Oh, yeah. Then what's your experience? Yeah, that's always the case, especially when you're buying from overseas. They're, they're you know, big. remember that when you're supplying, you're actually sending revenue to somebody. So they'll be, they're very, very accommodating. You're buying off them, mm. right? You're buying a product or service. So they're more than, they're more than happy, right? To run around and accommodate you. However, then, but if, but if you're going overseas to extract revenue, then it becomes a little bit more difficult. I mean, how is, how is selling a good or a, you know, what's, what's the difficulty of selling a good or a service here in, in the domestic market? I mean, it's, it's quite high. So as I said to you before, you know, I mean, adding that other layer of complexity when you're going overseas, it's even more difficult. Requires a lot of upfront work. It requires multiple visits, and it requires a significant amount of trust as well in doing that. Um, you know, these things don't happen in a vacuum. You're going to be reliant on people over there, and you know, this is where partners and, and, and employees and trust and managing from from afar becomes really, really important. Right? And this is where those there's these there's particular mechanisms that you can that you can that you can try and instill. However, um, however, you know it's it, it requires a certain degree of experience and a certain degree of nous to to kind of master the international business field. In um, in two thousand and eight, I was working for an Australian investment company, yeah. and we were acquired by Morningstar, which was a big US uh, funds research business. And um, you know, I was fresh into the workforce, few years in, didn't really understand why they paid such a big price for a business that seemingly didn't really have many uh, moats, right? Yeah. Or it was a people business. But then you start to realise that. Um, exactly what you said going into new markets to try to capture demand to try to take money out and sell into it explains why a lot of multinationals go out and acquire businesses when they want to enter into new markets because often it's a lot easier and cheaper than them trying to do it themselves yeah absolutely and um you know you uh having a pre a, a pre-made footprint in a particular country just kind of alleviates many of those issues of what we you know we call those a brownfield investments you know um as opposed to what we call a greenfield which you kind of you, you develop from the ground up you know there are those advantages of both right however the brownfield investment is really you know for a multinational works really well because you've already got a footprint you've already got you know the mechanisms the processes and procedures in place you know, and you can just kind of gradually, you know, you know, gradually um, <clears throat> integrate your organisation into theirs, and then, 
basically you know roll that into the organize roll that into the the overall group makes market entry a lot easier however you know that's for multinationals who have a lot of money right you know for the startup i mean it really depends on what it is that you're doing you know a product or a service however you know international expansion especially from a services perspective or even from a tech perspective now is a significantly um, easier path than what it used to be traditionally you know the internet of you know there's a whole discipline that is being created inside the the umbrella of international business studies for these new for the for, for the emergence of tech companies and how they internationalize overseas so it's a lot easier but still the fundamentals remain the same you know and and basically one of the one of the key areas is you know is partner selection over there always that you know this you know you're not a hundred percent virtual so and you're always going to need people over there so it's that it's that it's finding the right people just like it is here in australia or just like in any other domestic economy you know finding the right people becomes absolute key so i can ask you to tell me about a lot of different markets but i'm yeah. going to ask you about latin america because you've just come back from there yeah. And Latin America is a market that's close to me because yeah. our business welfare is focusing on the Latin America market. Yeah. What's your conviction? Having come back, having um, you know spent time, got a feel for the market and the demographics and the geopolitics. Where do you think that continent goes next? And who who are your top choices in that market? Um, so, just as a bit of background, I went to I went to Chile for three weeks. But I also managed to go to Buenos Aires, Argentina, for, for four days. You know, during the my during the first week of my uh, of my visit over there, and you could tell the difference. You you could feel the the economic issues in Buenos Aires. I mean, I mean, Argentina has been in the news for quite some time now. You know, they've just elected a new president who's looking to really, really revolutionise the the country for better or for worse however you want to interpret it no, but, let's not understate that this is a guy that that wields a chainsaw yeah, um, yeah. and it wants to murder leftists right yeah, that, yeah, that's yeah. Not an exaggeration that's yeah. literally what he's talking about doing yeah, so yeah. that's the extent that it's reached there right but go ahead about it yeah, yeah yeah so he's kind of i mean you know from a rhetoric perspective he's like kind of a donald trump on steroids right so but you could see you could see the, the 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 poverty just on the streets of Buenos Aires um, and so on and so forth. Now I I happened to fly out on the Monday there where the day the day after the actual elections itself. So I kind of got a snapshot of what was happening over there. Um, however, Chile was a little bit different, I think. Um, Chile is very rich in resources. It's it's almost akin to Australia. Um, it's very resource rich, both from a commodities perspective and a soft commodities. They they have a they have lots of mining, especially around lithium, copper, and so forth. Um, a very big aquaculture industries in the south. Um, a very small population. I think it's about twenty million. So you could see you could and you know for, you know from my experience, I look at the visual markers. You know. What kind of cars people drive, the, the prices of things, you know, especially around meals and supermarkets and so forth. Um, just to give you an example, 
um, Argentina in Buenos Aires, and 800, you know, at a restaurant in a very, in a very ritzy area. An 850 gram T-bone steak cost, I think it was $14 Australian. Wow. Yeah. That would cost you, what, two, two, 300 bucks for an Aussie well, restaurant? Yeah, in Australian restaurant, they might cost you about maybe $100, $120 or something like that. In, in, in Santiago, it was the same as well as Australian prices. So something like that in Santiago would have probably cost you about 100 maybe $130. And these countries are literally next door, right? Territorial, they share a territorial boundary. They do share, yeah, they share, yeah, that's right. So Argentina is the larger of the two, but, they, but they're long elongated countries that go from sort of the, 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 the bottom third of Latin America and all the way down to Antarctica. So it, it sounds to me, having listened to your description, um, you've got the United Arab Emirates and then you've got the Arab countries around it and that's yeah. the exception, that's the wealth hub. Yeah. You've got Singapore and then your Thailand, Vietnam, Laos yeah. around it, right? Um, it sounds like Chile is that economic hub with the rest of the countries around it still trying to figure out their space. Is that fair or is Uruguay a close second? Well, you know, they... Uruguay, from what people were telling me over there, is is that it's attractive because of the tax rate. You know, um, what I a lot of the conversations over there was about tax and tax and tax and so forth. And Uruguay's kind of positioned itself from a, from a low tax perspective. However, I mean, I was really impressed by the by the caliber of individuals and entities in Chile, especially around, I mean, around the tech and the tech space. You know, in Santiago itself, there's there's four WeWork, I think there's three WeWorks. Um, and I managed to meet with up with a lot of um, startup businesses over there. And some of the products, some of the some of the services or some of the some of the some of the businesses and the technology that they've produced has you know is quite well I wouldn't say world leading, but it's 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 on par with what we have in the world. So, um, so and the universities produce a lot of a lot of high caliber students, especially around the computer computer sciences and the other sorts of STEM courses, right? So, um, I think, yeah, I think you know, listening to that, it's a perfect example of how um, countries first use tax as a competitive advantage. Yeah. But then later, what we're seeing, particularly over the past 20 or 30 years, it's the ecosystem they build around that tax yeah. advantage that then takes them to the next level. Hong Kong has always had an attractive tax regime, but Singapore has also and is now, you know, a financial hub yeah. and trading hub. And you start to see the changes where it's not yeah. just about tax. I mean, the U.S. isn't very tax friendly, yeah. but Silicon Valley is the innovation hub. Why? Not because of tax, but because of the ecosystem, the people, yeah. um, the drive, the culture, the taste for business. Yeah, and there is that, and there, and there, each each one of those countries has those those capabilities. However, what drew me to Chile was actually the people that are eventually our, you know, are, are our joint venture partners over there. So, you know, over a year ago. You know, there was a particular individual who came from Chile, who you know, whose whose entity over there produces software, high-end software, and that was really the draw card. And that's one of the things that really, 
I mean, that's the primary reason, right? And I mentioned that before around partner selection. So these countries are fantastic, but you know, but at its at its fundamental level, right? You need to be partnering with the right people over there. And when you go overseas, right? You, you know, you need to spend a lot of time up front making sure that you've got the right partner, right, or the right partners, and creating the network and ecosystem as well in order to ensure um, that you know that you you have the best chances of success. And in and amongst that also is, you know, things like Austrade, right? talking to delegate, you know, trade representatives, not only from the state, but also from Austrade and so forth. And they really help you out. I mean, that's their job, right? So, so yeah. Yeah, look, just on that, and, and uh, we're getting towards the end, but uh, I think that's an important point for an entrepreneur that doesn't have that ecosystem, wouldn't yeah. know the difference between uh, person A or person B in a market that they want to expand in, um, you raise an important point that a lot of times we have resources, particularly in Australia being a yeah. world a developed country, we have Australia, we have Trade New South Wales, we've got a lot of resources. Um, yeah. How do you tap into those? How does somebody tap into those? Is it just, I do think you need to know people, do you need to qualify or is it open for everyone? You don't need, you know, it is their job to help businesses, Australian businesses, export their goods or services to a particular country, right? Um, so the first thing I would do is actually find out who are your trade representatives in a particular country, reach out to them, tell them what you're planning on doing. And they and my experience has always been that they are more than willing to help. Um, you know, their KPIs basically are tied to your success. And if they can show that they're actually doing, that they, that, that, um, that they can, that, that that there is an opportunity for you and they're able to show, I think that that'll work very much in your favor. So you just have to find out who they are and then reach out to them. And my experience has been, and especially now, you know, dealing with Austrade in Chile, um, I found them to be very, very engaging, very, very helpful. Um, and they and they were and they were they were they were they proposed and even introduced us to, to some potential clients, you know, in our, in just in that first three weeks. So, so I mean, don't be afraid to go out and ask. And also, talk to the trade offers of the particular economy you're going to as well. Yeah, they might have. You know, in, you know, from a networking perspective, no meeting is useless, right? And no contact, right? Shouldn't be. You know, every contact you can think of should be should be approached i mean that's the best way to do it and just line up as many meetings as possible and one of the practical tips is to to do you know to do a scouting tour to do a few scouting tours you know just to kind of get familiar before you actually rush into anything right and you have to use your you have to use your normal business smarts even when you go overseas mm. right no yeah, just like just like you would just like you would when you're choosing a partner here in Australia, I mean those kinds of you know the values that you have you know you know honesty, integrity, information sharing, so on and so forth are the same and it should be the same anywhere you go, right? Yeah. Uh, final question, really serious question. Did you bump into any Assyrians while you were? Here? No, no, no. There was there wasn't any. There was a few. There was a um, there was 
there was one guy there was a few of fewer Syrians in actually Argentina yeah but however a few general after a few generations they kind of blended into uh, blended into the Arabic community that then blends that then blended into the Argentinian community but uh, but no it didn't not in Chile anyway um, it's uh, quite surprising that both countries are very multicultural um, you know that I went to the south I went to the Patagonia in Chile and the, uh, I went to a town called Porto Varas, right, which is right at the bottom of where the Chilean landmass stops and and those chain of islands begin. And it was, it, it looked like something out of a germ, uh, out of a Bavarian town. So these countries are very, very multicultural, right? And you can see that as well in in the in the complexion of a lot of people. Well, if you're a Syrian and you're in South America <laughs> and you're listening to this, reach out. We want to know you. We want to meet you the next time we're there. But, George, um, to, to to put a bow on a, what's been, I think, a pretty good year, um, I want to say thank you uh, for jumping on the podcast. Thank you for being a friend and a mentor um, and a colleague for me and sharing your wisdom with our listeners. And I'm sure uh, we're going to be working a lot closer in, in uh, 2024. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity, Peter, and uh, look forward to uh, catching up with you again. Thank you. Thanks, guys.